morning, church. Good to see you guys. I'm at the point in my life now when I hear somebody call me an old friend, I wonder what they mean by that. Is it the amount of years we've known each other or the fact that I'm just old now? So I told DJ this morning when we served together, I did not need glasses, and now I do. So just what time does to us, uh, but uh, I found that God is faithful even into the graying of my head. He continues to be faithful. Um, Congratulations, uh, Trinity Church. Uh, the fact that you guys are here uh, is a testament to God's faithfulness and his outpouring of grace continually on you. And I'm excited. I mean, it, it's one of the joys of my life was getting to know DJ and Heather and continuing to know them and their family and watch them grow and see how God is using them. Um, so I want to say thank you to him and to Tom and Dave as well for entrusting this part of, of the worship service to me. I mean, I know I come by recommend, recommendation of DJ, but the rest of you guys have no idea who I am. Um, but I want to be faithful in expositing what God um, has written down for us and thinking about what it means to be the church this morning. So we're going to look at, at uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, which are probably very familiar verses to you. But part of what it means to, to be in the church is, you know, we continually preach the gospel to ourselves. We have to be reminded, and that's what this message is sort of doing. It's reminding us who we are. What is it that we do? How we live? The gospel has radically changed who we are, so by implication... It changes the way we do things. And what we'll see today, I hope, is it changes the way we see things. That's a major implication, I believe, from this text. And any time we undertake to, to understand who we are a little bit better as the church and how it impacts what we do and why we exist, we have to deal with certain questions. Um, and when you think about the church as an institution, you say, is, it a, is, is the church a product of man's ingenuity or is it a product of, God, a product of God's sovereignty? Is it a human invention or is it a divine institution? Is it merely something that has to do with external attachment, or is it spiritual union? If we better understood those types of questions and, and, and continually tried to answer those from day to day in our lives, a lot of what we struggle with as individuals, but also struggle with as, as churches, as we come together corporately, would be answered and taken care of. If we just rightly understood who we are as a body of believers in Jesus Christ, and the consistent, consistent testimony in scripture is that the church isn't a means to an end it's the end in and of itself it is the bride of christ it is a people as we'll see today for god's own possession so that has some radical implications for us you know it's it's something that we live in and it's how we move forward as a people now and the passage we look at today uh it deals with questions we could look at it from one aspect and we read the verses which we'll read in just a moment and see questions answered very clearly, like what is the church, who is in the church, by what means are they in the church, why are they in the church. So all that is, is answered for us. But I think the strong current that flows just beneath the surface of the verses we're going to read here is the issue of, of sight, of how we see things and how that impacts us. Because that begins to answer the question of what it is that we are set free to do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read through this in just a moment, specifically in verses 9 and 10, because we're going to read verses 6 through 10 just to give us a little context. But when we get to verses 9 through 10, I want you to notice sort of the scaffolding that Peter uses to hold that up. And the scaffolding is this. It is, you are that you may because God has. So in other words, by grace, we have been made something we are something that we may now engage in something because God has done something and that's just his line of thought there 
and it informs everything about this message. And, and this message is going to be sort of center-weighted. The main point I want to get across to you is what we'll look at in the second point of the sermon. Because I, and I think it's informed by what's around it there. So, again, I would argue that the main issue here is, is the meaning or the, the issue of, of sight, of seeing things. It's the central truth in the passage. So, And, and hear me clearly. Uh, the gospel and what it means to be in Christ's church is not primarily about what we do. You know, I, I don't want that to come across. The gospel is primarily and essentially about what has been done for us by God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. That's the gospel. But since that has been done to us by grace, it affects the way we live. I mean, we don't live in a static state. We do things. Just in our day-to-day lives, we engage people. We engage in activities. So those are going to be informed by the fact that God has done something with us and for us. Now, I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 6 through 10 of 1 Peter 2 to give us a little context. And this is what, what Peter writes here for us. He says, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, the context in which Peter is writing here is he's encouraging believers who are under persecution and have been scattered out through, throughout the region of Asia Minor. And I believe that this, this group of believers consists of both Jews and Gentiles who have come to Christ in repentance and faith. So part of what it means for him to encourage them is to remind them who they are. To remind them what God has done, and as a result, how they are to now live. So he gives a good foundation for us to begin to understand what it means for us to live as the church of Christ. And he gives right up front, under this this heading of you are, the first part of verse 9. He says, but you are. And that's in drastic contrast to verses 7 and 8, where he said, those who disbelieve the word. He says, but you there's something different, and he, he gives four identifiers and, and analogies that, that describe and give definition to the church. So by saying you are, we understand he's, he's addressing a specific group of people, and he's already identified those people in the very beginning of this letter. In the first two verses of 1 Peter, he says this, identifying himself, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are, here it is, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So the but you are in verse 9 is these believers in Jesus Christ, the one whom God had chosen, drawn to himself, sanctified by the work of the Spirit, that they would obey Jesus Christ and be covered by his atoning sacrifice. And again, this is in direct contrast to verses 7 and 8, those who disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter gives these, and, and us, give these readers four powerful identifiers here 
as to what it means to be in the church. So, and they're not the only ones we find, but by looking at them when he says you are a chosen race, a royal, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession, we understand that he's talking about a group of people and not a building, not a denomination, not some other uh, organization, but a group of people who have a commonality in Jesus Christ by the grace of God. And it's, I think it's significant, too, that Peter's applying identifiers that were used specifically for the nation of Israel. He's now applying them to the church of Jesus Christ. And it's not about replacement. It's about fulfillment. It's about promise and fulfilling that promise. And that's what we see here. This is part of what it means for Peter to remind them who they are. So I want you to note that the first thing that we see, that who we are has everything to do, number one, with God's grace. He calls them, you are a chosen race. And he's already used that term, chosen, in the very beginning of the letter. And this comes from Deuteronomy 10.15. Moses is explaining to the people of Israel why it is that they find themselves in the position that they are in. Because God has done something. And from Peter's understanding, salvation was all of grace and none of man. Man would reject God. And his sinful state would reject the message of the gospel, if not for the interposing of sovereign grace and applied by the Holy Spirit, resulting in obedience to repent and believe the call of the gospel. So the point at this juncture, when Peter calls them a chosen race, is that they would understand that God's choosing them has everything to do with their behavior. And you think, well, how do you get behavior from race? Well, a good example of this we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Listen to what Paul says here to the believers in Thessalonica about who they are. It says in verse 4, he says, Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, and that's how he, how he frames it, he says, Now this, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. And what I want you to see, my point in reading that, is there are visible, detectable, observable, measurable things taking place in the lives of these believers that identify them as people who have been chosen, who belong to Christ, who identify them as that chosen race. And when we begin to understand, now, in Deuteronomy, when the, when the nation would, would have been called a chosen race, that makes sense because he's talking to the Jews. But now that Peter's applying that to the church, obviously his using of race has to do with something more than just a specific bloodline. It has to do more with the grace of God and calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself. And what identifies them as a race is the fact that they've been changed. So it has everything to do with this observable nature of what's taking place in their lives. They live differently. That's the consistent testimony of Scripture in regarding those who have come to Christ. So the church will first be a people who, have, who show evidence of God's grace in their lives. But secondly, this, who we are has everything to do with God's service. And that's a confusing term. I don't mean God serving us. But he calls him a royal priesthood. Now for the Jews who would have been in 
the receiving audience of this original letter, that would have been a very powerful descriptor for them. They would have immediately thought of the Levitical priesthood. And Peter's not saying, look, now you get to engage yourself in liturgical activity and, uh, and become a Levite and do the, he's not, he's not going that direction. What he's saying is now you see yourself as those who can approach God safely through Jesus Christ because of his shed blood and now can intercede for others because of the work of Christ who intercedes for us. He says you are a royal priesthood. And we see everything we do in life now as an offering to God, an offering of praise. Not, a, not an atoning offering, but an offering of praise to God. But then he also says that everything we are has to do with God's measure. Look at the next thing he says. You are a holy nation. Now, all the nouns he's used so far, um, when he says race, priesthood, and here nation, they're, they're sort of highlighting this difference between the church and the surrounding world. But it's the adjectives that he used that give them definition. And here the adjective is holy. And for the world, when you use the word holy, it largely has a negative connotation. And it's used to inform some expletives at times. But that's not the biblical picture of the word holy. It means utterly separate from, set apart for a purpose. So when Peter says you're a holy nation, he's saying something, again, about what we do, who we are, what we've been called to do, what we've been set free to do. So it informs this word in the sense that we're gathered under a common banner, adhering to a common creed, as the word nation applies, implies. Um, but we're utterly separate in our behavior. Peter holds to this so strongly that he, again, he goes back to the Old Testament in Leviticus earlier in this letter in chapter 1 again. And he says to his readers and to us, but like the Holy One who called you, called you be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy holy our only hope in obeying what peter is commanding us to do there from the command we find in leviticus is christ that his holiness his righteousness is applied to us and we become in practice over time what we are declared to be in christ right now which is holy separate other set apart for a purpose and then the last thing he says in this first point here about what it is that we are and is that it has everything to do with God's glory. Look at the last one. You are a people for God's or for his own possession. And this is just a reminder that the church does not, it's not self-directed. It, it was not brought into existence. It's not self-actualizing. It does not seek to please anyone but the one who purchased it. And that's what we find Paul telling the elders in Acts chapter 20. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all your flock among, the, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That This is something that we belong to that is not ours. You know, one of my favorite, and DJ knows this, because I've said it often, but one of my favorite theologians is uh, Jonathan Edwards, 18th century pastor theologian. And he wrote a little book, I say little, it, it, for him it is little, it's a, the end for which God created the world. And he takes a hundred or so pages to say God created the world and he does everything he does for his own glory. But it makes a very strong case for that. So if you think about the church, God forming the church, Christ dying for the church, God drawing people to himself, they are now, now being a people for God's own possession. And we can rest assured that everything God does in, with, and through his church 
is for his own glory. The things we experience, the struggles we work through, the joys we anticipate and, and experience are for his own glory. That his name might be spread among the nations, his fame. So all that's how he sets it up. That's, that's the you are part of the scaffolding. You are these things. It's a reminder to the church. But what does that look like when it hits the pavement? What does it look like in everyday life? I mean, that, that's the question, right? So look at the second point here I have for you. In the second half of verse 9, you are these things that you may. And here it is, that the central issue of sight, of seeing things the way they are intended to be seen and the way they actually are. So we have that all-encompassing phrase that describes the activity of the church, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And I'm afraid that we misunderstand or at best stop short of what this phrase really means for us. Because we tend to lay at the feet of this phrase the task of speaking or verbally engaging in evangelism. And it is that. It's no less than that. But it's so much more than that. So if you think about what Peter's saying here, sharing and speaking and, and speaking of the excellencies of, of Christ and sharing the gospel, is that everything he intends with that phrase and I think I would argue, no, I think what Peter is getting at here is much more difficult. It's much more encompassing with our lives. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. And of course, the word proclamation implies a broadcasting of some information verbally. But look at how he informs the activity. You proclaim the excellencies, excellence, excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when we see darkness and light in Scripture, I mean, obviously, it's an analogy. I mean, at its heart, it means that we've, we've been given information that we previously did not have. We've been enlightened. We now understand something we did not previously understand. And that's what Peter is getting at. But it's an analogy that has everything to do with our ability to see. Scripture talks a lot about, you know, understanding being the issue of, oh, now I see. Hymn writers deal with that, you know. Amazing grace, I once was blind, but now I what? See. And the issue is, is understanding something very significant that informs everything we do. So, and it's not just in the light, is it? He calls it a marvelous light. It's a light that deeply satisfies and does its job to the fullest extent that we could hope for. And it implies also that one time we were frustrated. Have you ever gotten up late at night? I'm sure you have trying to get to the bathroom or to the kitchen sink to get a drink of water, and it's dark, how frustrating that can be. Especially maybe after you turn the light back off and go to go back to your bed, and it's pitch black at that time. It's, you're groping along the wall and trying to find the doorknob to get in. It's very frustrating. So to be in darkness spiritually is even more frustrating, and the stakes are much, much, much higher than a stubbed toe. So this is the issue. And light in Scripture is, again, is associated with the knowledge of something that we previously did not have. So if we've been called out of spiritual ignorance into spiritual insight, out of darkness into light, what does this light reveal to us that we now enjoy? And how does it inform the fact that we now proclaim these excellencies? That's the big question. Now, 
a few scripture verses that deal with light that you probably have heard. Listen to them. Isaiah 42, 16. The Lord says, I will lead the blind by a road they do not know, by paths they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I will do, and I will not forsake them. So we start to see this this faithfulness and presence of God being associated with this light. Then that great passage of hope that we find for the coming Messiah in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, the light has shone on them. And then John chapter 8, from the, from the mouth of Jesus himself, says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So now we start to see hope and actual a life and death issue coming to the fore with the issue of light. And then 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Paul speaking about unbelievers who do not see the truth of the gospel. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, keeping them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So light is very important here. And again, I'm not arguing that the gospel is an issue of eyesight. Again, it's an analogy. The gospel is an issue of the heart. But it's amazing how a new heart opens the eyes. Okay? Peter uses this imagery to point to the fact that those who are in the church, we see radically different than unbelievers do. We see that we should see everything radically differently. We see everything through the lens of the gospel of sovereign grace. And how we live in the midst of what we see should only be described as proclaiming the excellencies of him who has opened our eyes. Now think about your context, where you find yourself day to day, week to week. Think about everything you experience, the frustrations, the difficulties, the hardships, and think about whether or not you see that as occasion with your life to proclaim the excellencies of him who has shown you that what he's doing is for his glory and your eternal joy. Now, please hear me. I fail at this a lot. I, I get so frustrated at times during the week and different things I have to do and get involved in. But the point is that we remind ourselves, hey, is this an occasion? Yes, it is for me to somehow live in this and proclaim with my life the excellencies of him who has called me out of darkness into light. That I now see what's happening around me and to me and with me and in my situation as something that's come by design for me to handle in such a way that the glory of God is revealed. See, it should be that I see everything differently. That I see my, my wife differently, my children differently, my job differently, my neighbor differently my sickness differently, my health differently, my hobbies, my appetite, my joy, my disappointments, everything differently than just floating through life and all the ups and downs and and multitude of things that it brings. That I now see these things because God has opened my eyes and brought me out of frustration and darkness into a light that deeply satisfies me. And lets me see and understand that in Christ, everything is for my good. Everything. 
And I'll, you know, I'll be honest with you, just like you could be honest with me, that there are things that have happened in my life that I have a difficult time explaining how they would be good for me. But as life continues, and I trust the one who knows and does all things well, though I may not understand completely how that will be good for me, I will one day experience exactly how it was good for me and see what he was doing that I could not see here or had difficulty seeing here. But the fact that he has called us out of darkness is meant to remind us, look, look hard, look deeply at your situation, your circumstances. Look deeply at everything you do and see it as occasion to proclaim the excellencies of him, him who has given you that sight. So the next, you know, it's meant to put everything in life into its proper perspective and pecking order. I think that's where we, that's where I get in trouble, is when I put things that need to be down here, up here, in the wrong order of how I need to see them and deal with them. So the question comes, this is a proclamation with life, not just the mouth. That's why I said I think it's, it's more encompassing and much more difficult. It, you know, I can, regardless of how I feel or what I've been in through, I can, I can logically explain the gospel to somebody. It's much harder. It's much harder for me to live continually in such a way that gives weight and credence to what I may be able to speak with my mouth. To have my life back up my confession. And this is where this issue comes in. The light by which I can now see should enable me, should encourage me and aid me to see everything in such a way that that is my goal. That how I handle everything, how I live, I see it as a proclamation in addition to what I am graciously given the opportunity to, to speak to those who, who need to hear the message. So, who is the, the recipient of the message? You know, that's the next question. If we're doing all this proclaiming with word and deed, who gets the message? Obviously, it's those we looked at even in verses 7 and 8. We want the world to see the excellencies of him who called us. We want the world to know. We want to proclaim the goodness and grace of Christ to everyone. That's why, it's imp- that's why there's no off button. There's no compartmentalizing for the Christian. Where I act one way here and act a different way over here. We want to be consistent in the light that we walk in. I mean, Psalm 96.2, sing to the Lord, bless his name, proclaim tidings of his salvation from day to day. Yeah, but do we, stop? Do we see that only as a verbal issue? I mean, Paul in Colossians chapter 4 went on to say, in speaking about this issue, conduct yourselves, that has to do with our behavior, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And then he pulls in, let your speech be always gracious, as, as if it were seasoned with salt. So you can't really separate these two. You can't separate speech, which we can do, and life, which is difficult. I think that's what Peter is getting at here. He speaks of the excellencies and the marvelous light that brings it. We continually now live in this light. Now what? watch this. In verse 10, we have this issue, that the last part of the scaffolding. You are that you may because God has. Look at verse 10. And this is implied. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. That implies God has done something. Once you had not received mercy... But now you have received mercy. And what Peter does here is simply, 
again, to remind them what they are now versus what they used to be. You ever stop to think about that? You know, I was once not a part of God's people, and now I am. I once was not under mercy but wrath, which is a terrifying thought, but now I have received mercy. So he's telling this entire group of people and you and I that at one time we were outside of God's possession of us in a redemptive way and his mercy on us. But by grace we have these things. So I think this implies two very important things. Number one, if he says you were once not God's people, you were not a people, but now you are, it implies that they weren't born naturally into the church. And that's a mistake some people make. That because mom and dad or grandma and grandpa were believers, that that's sort of just the, the context I grew up in, and I'm fine. Peter says every single one of us at one time were not a part of God's people. We're outside until something happened. And then secondly, it completely rebuts the idea that we, that we should or can or have to clean up our act to become a part of the church. He says the issue on the front end is not an issue of behavior, it's an issue of mercy. One time you were without mercy, but now you have received mercy. The behavior is a, is a result. And I've talked to people before that think, you know, I just can't, I can't, can't go to church. I've you know, I got to get, it's like you, you, will never, you will never get your act together. <laughs> you can't do it. You can't change your behavior in any, in any redemptive way. It's not going to happen. On the front end, it is an issue of mercy. And again, we were without it until something happened. So, yes, there are people in the church, but they're not there because they were born into it or because they got their act together. Matter of fact, quite the opposite is the case. He says, now you are a people belonging to God. And he's hearkening back to what he said in verse 9. You're people for God's own possession. And it's those two issues, but now, but now, that make all the difference. If they're, you know, I've talked about this a lot. That conjunction, but, in Scripture is... is is incredible. We read one this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, which is in harmony with this very passage. Because if, you know, if we recall it, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, i.e., in other words, not the people of God. Among them you too all formerly lived in the lust of your flesh according to the desires of the flesh and the mind, but were by nature children of wrath as the rest. In other words, not under mercy. And he says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, has caused us and made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Same thing Peter is saying here. God has done something very specific on our behalf. His mercy is an expression of his grace. You have now received mercy. Why do we need mercy and what's the basis of it? Very, very simple. We need mercy because without it, we stand condemned. We're sinners. We desperately need, I mean, if mercy is a withholding of something that is due us, if we realize what's due us in our sin, we, we realize we desperately need mercy from God. But at what cost? I mean, what's the basis of the mercy? It's the sacrifice of Christ. The finished, atoning sacrifice of Christ. Because God is rich in mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us, he has caused us. 
to be born again. He's made us alive together with Christ. And the author of Hebrews reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no mercy without sacrifice. And we need to remind ourselves of that. That the marvelous light that we walk in was not just something like a light switch was turned on that cost nothing and just, hey, come over here. The light was ushered in for us by the redeeming sacrifice of Christ. It's costly. But this is the light that we live in. The light that we now enjoy that gives us a deep satisfaction. So the central point here is that we now see. But the question for me and the question for all of us is, how do I now live in light of the sight that I have? Because there's, there's a tension there. Because though we have this marvelous light that we live in, yet we still find ourselves struggling to see clearly. It's there, but we struggle because my tendency is to sort of want to walk back to the darkness, to sort of live where it's sort of hidden and live life that way. I don't like people monitoring my life, seeing what I do. But the gospel calls me out into the light. God would be glorified among the nations, among all those who would see me. Yeah, I fail at it. You fail at it. We do. That's why it's so great that we have a Savior who, who has forgiven, redeemed us, and made us his very own. We now see. So the question is, tell me, what do you see? With this radical line of sight that has been given us to see everything differently, ask yourself that question every morning. Every day as you're in difficulty, not that every day has difficulty, but more or less. What do you see? Do you see something that's just come to wreck your day or to wreck your week or to wreck your life or just to make things difficult? Or do you see something that is meant to give you opportunity to proclaim excellencies? The excellencies of Christ, the excellencies of God the Father that's called you to himself. What do you see? Because here's what ultimately will happen with the church. John 17, I mean, I think the issue of sight is a, is a secondary issue. It's not. John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. One of the things he prays, and I think is the central, the high point of this prayer, 17, verse 24, he's praying and he says, Father, I desire that they be where I am, that they may see my glory, which you gave me before the foundation of the world because you loved me we would see. We are meant to see the glory of God. You think about Exodus chapter 33, that whole golden calf issue there with this, this back and forth going between God and Moses and the threat to not go with the people. And Moses is interceding for the people. But one of the things Moses does, which seems to jump out of nowhere, but I think reveals his great desire, is he says, I beg with you, show me your glory. He wants to see the glory of God. So this is the issue. So the way I hope we can answer the question when, when all those things come at us and we say, what do I see? Is I see the glory of God. Because nothing comes at us that is not passed through the loving hands of the one who has called us to himself. Hard as that is to understand at times. But that's the reality. So the challenge for me from day to day is to, to see the glory of God not only in the great things and the beautiful things and the things that bring me great joy, but in the, in the, in the things that seem to crush me from day to day.
because the glory is there, no, no less. Because what was that promise from Isaiah? I will not forsake them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, and I will not forsake them. And we find that promise all through Scripture. And he who has called us and lets us see is with us and will not forsake us. So I pray that you take that as an encouragement as you go into the, the coming week, this being the start of a new week today. That you go into your week, and whatever may, I mean, some of us may be here this morning, and we know that there are things waiting us that we've got to deal with when we go back to work or back to school or whatever it may be. I pray that you say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really look at this situation until I see the glory of God in it and see how I'm supposed to then proclaim with my life how good he is and how excellent he is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for grace and mercy and the giving of sight to us Lord, that we could see that everything that you graciously bring our way is for your glory and our good. That we would rejoice in Christ. That we would rejoice that we belong to you. That we can now see things as we're supposed to see them. Father, we realize that there's a world groping in darkness that cannot see the light of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that we would be, as we walk in that light, we would be ones who continually proclaim, not only verbally, that we would be doing that, but even more so, we would accompany that with how we live, that our lives would be lives of proclamation, that people could understand that we see things differently, and it impacts how we live. Father, we ask for your continued grace and guidance in our lives. Lord, I pray that you continue to bless Trinity, that you would grow and strengthen and deepen them in the truth of the gospel. Lord, that they would be a light in this community. Lord, that they would radically impact, not only here, but by your grace around the world, the people that you would call to yourself for your own possession. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.